Surveys, studies, and polls, oh my, they reveal that amongst our country's many painful losses over recent decades, the most consequential may be the loss of the knowledge of history. The top underachievers in this painful category, millennials, now the country's dominant demographic. Once upon a time, not long ago, there was a known world. This concept came with the understanding that parts of the world had yet to be discovered. It was an important intellectual context, the understanding that there were things we did not know. Today, many Americans operate with a dangerous ignorance of history, dangerous because they assume their knowledge is complete. Today's guest has given a great deal of thought to the importance of history in today's world. Rachel Fulton Brown is Associate Professor of Medieval European History at the University of Chicago, specializing in the study of devotion, prayer, and the works of Tolkien. Rachel is also an author and podcaster focusing on Christian studies, including the Virgin Mary and the Middle Ages. She has written for Breitbart News and is a competitive fencer in her spare time. I've left out so much of an amazingly rich life. Rachel, welcome to the show. Perhaps you can fill in the gaps of your adventures as a Christian believer in the very secular world of academia. Well, thank you for having me. You've said that medieval history is an exercise in empathy where we strive to engage imaginatively with a very different worldview. Empathy includes respect. This differs widely from the arrogance of projecting today's values back on the past and judging the past according to these standards. How does this challenge of shifting perspectives affect your students? Um, well, they seem to enjoy it <laughs> in my classes. And that, I mean, one of the things that I do in order to help them think about their own perspectives is give them assignments that encourage them to um, do, do more imaginative work. I do a lot of um, exercises where they have to write basically effectively historical fiction that they then have to research very, very deeply and you know, imagine themselves into the, the scenarios that they're trying to understand and, and describe. So I, I mean, I find you're, you're talking about millennials and, and their you know, ability to engage with the past. Most of the time as teachers, what we need to do is be creative about how we set that up. Right, because they're already, I mean, okay, they're in my classes and so they're already quite excited and, and interested in, in at least studying history. But, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do over my career is find new ways to challenge our own sense of what we know, what we don't know, and how to participate in the past. And I can, I've been doing some recent work where I think I can explain better why I came to that practice. But my first, my first suggestion is there's, there's not, there's less reason for despair than it sometimes feels. How's that? <laughs> Good to know. How does the legacy of Catholic sacred art and music help stretch the imaginations? Well, so if you, if I, if I may, I'll, I'll step back a bit, right? I, I was asked um, the last month or so, last year, but it, in working on this in the last month, to do a paper to meditate on um, the gospel spoken and written. Um, and this is something that I've carried with me over the course of my scholarship that I, back in the 1980s when I was an undergraduate, I had classes in the scriptures, in the, you know, the synoptic gospels, the letters of Paul and such. And the, the professor I was studying with at Rice, where I was an undergraduate, was very interested in this oral gospel, right? He'd done a book on the oral gospel of Mark, and he was very interested in the problem of, you know, the gospels are, are written down, 
But of course, Jesus didn't write anything. <laughs> um, they're written by his followers and they're written for varieties of audiences, right? And in thinking about this problem of, well, you know, how do we go from now where we're used to having printed books to then the Middle Ages when people didn't tend to have printed books because the printing press hadn't been invented yet? How do we bridge that, you know, gap of understanding between our world in which we, you know, people say you should read the Bible, right? The Protestant version of things is you should have a Bible, you should read it cover to cover, and that's the way we practice. The the the, the medieval tradition, which is you know much more in continuity with the Catholic tradition, but there are some ruptures there too, was one where images and architecture and music all come into a sort of holistic experience, right? And when I say you you ask me first, you know, where is the empathy, where is the participation? When I'm trying to show my students that medieval past, I'm trying to get them in that sort of full media world, right? It's it's not it's not just the written text that you need to understand if you want to be um, sort of educated as a Christian. It's also the sung liturgy, it's the the architecture that you're singing those those liturgies within, and it's all of the you know altarpieces and illuminated books and so forth that come into it. As a as a scholar, that's been one of my great challenges. How do I show modern either academics or Christians the richness of that sensory experience right from the middle ages now can i keep going is this is this too long Absolutely. An answer? no this is fascinating <laughs> so i forgot where i was for a moment <laughs> that's uh, well okay so in in your opening in your opening statement you said that one of the things that we seem to have difficulty with is convincing people about there being a past right and that we in the modern moment have this feeling that we know everything right well I, I do tend to make a habit of reading people who have been thrown out of the academy or have been, you know, dismissed for a variety of reasons. And the person I'm reading right now a lot is Marshall McLuhan, who was a great Catholic scholar of the media, which because he was Catholic has meant that some of the insights that he, he brought to our appreciation of how writing, printing, electric communications affect our experience have been thrown out the window because oh, well, he was Catholic and that makes him nuts, right? Um, the thing that he appreciated better than anybody I've ever come across is the effect of the electric, right? And the electric comes into like you and me being able to talk here. <laughs> um, all of the kinds of experiences that we have online, whether they're videos or recordings or, um, I mean, back to television and radio and, and things like that. And his central insight was this electric, electric environment makes us feel like everything is present. Right. It's, it's like there's this this unmediated now that we're constantly uh, participating in. And that is what I, I realize consciously or unconsciously. I've been trying to um, both act within and show the way in which the medieval was already kind of there. Right. He he has this the, the other major image that he uses is mosaic. Right. That the electrical world is one of you know juxtapositions and patterns and intensity and presence. That is very much like the medieval world prior to the printing press. So we have this kind of gap between then and now, which is created by the, the existence of these printed books. We are in a better position right now to understand the Middle Ages than anybody prior to the invention of the electric light. And that's a kind of, uh, it's a delightful sort of uh, paradox, right? Catholic faith explores the mysteries of the human condition with both colorful storytelling and philosophical reasoning. The storytelling can be literary, artistic, musical, architectural, and all at the same time. Has Catholic storytelling been downgraded since 1970? And if so, 
to what result? Well, I, I don't know why you picked that date, 1970, um, that, you know, the primary Catholic storytelling I'm familiar with is, of course, Tolkien, and he, he died in, in um, 1973, right? Um, I think, but going back to what I was just saying about the media and the context and, and the, the sort of electrical, that I've been meditating a lot on the importance of poetry, and I have a group online that's been writing poetry, which we have intent specifically as Catholic. And I think one of the reasons that we don't understand either the medieval tradition or the Catholic tradition is we don't have the practice of thinking in that poetic mode, which is very referential, very symbolic, um, lots of, um, you know, juxtapositions of patterns and so forth. I think, I think we're actually better at it in the modern moment than we realize. If you think about the way in which people engage with materials online, things like memes and images and such like that. The problem is we haven't been doing it consciously from within the theological perspective of, you know, the incarnation. But, but the thing is, it is, it does matter sort of when, when the different, like we're in this social media moment now, which is, is, giving us lots and lots of possibilities. And there's an enormous conversation going on online among the millennials and the, and the Gen Zs about Christianity. We're just not tapping into it typically as, you know, either um, academics or may, maybe in, in the more general um, Catholic world, but it's, the, 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 it's like the kids are out there hungry for stories and, um, you know, the the kinds of rich uh, mythology that we get out of the middle ages all of the imagery that you get from um you know the the, the, the liturgy and the um scriptures themselves right that the scriptures are full of e extraordinary imagery and we are in a moment where it becomes possible to sort of play with that kind of dynamic juxtaposition and i guess we, we just haven't been doing it i'm not sure why i i'd, I'd say yeah, I'm not entirely sure why, because the possibilities are there and the and the media are there for us to be doing it in. When we look at medieval illuminated manuscripts, there's a lot of goofy humor sprinkled in the margins, even <laughs> when the topic is very serious. Did all this joyful exuberance have a purpose or was it just doodling? I say yes, right? And that's that's one of my main themes in my own online presence, right, is the laughter and war, right, which you get from Chesterton, that, you know, the medieval was um, mischievous and and prayerful at the same time. And I say within those those prayer books, right, the the, um, the the marginalia that most people are familiar with, those are usually hours of the Virgin, right, they're books of hours, and you are showing the sacred story in the center of the pictures, right, there'll be images of the nativity or the passion or something like that. People often use them with their rosary meditations, right, and on the margins of that is the recognition that we as, you know, incarnate beings are, you could say we're ultimately ridiculous, but God loves us anyway, um, that there's a, there's a kind of playfulness which fits with, um, in fact, the deep wisdom of what the incarnation meant. And you and I are recording today on the, on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and the, the, one of the readings for that feast is from Proverbs 8, right, where you have wisdom delighting before um, the, the, the creator and playing before him and dancing and playing. And I think a lot of that playful imagery that we get in the Marian manuscripts is resonating with the, the image of David dancing before the ark, right? The playfulness of praising the Lord and being you know, joyous in, in his presence. Mary is, of course, the ark, the, the new ark of the covenant. And so we dance before her and play for her before her as David danced before the ark. 
that is an example of the kind of layering of imagery that I have been trying to show in my own work on the medieval tradition that I recognize many modern Catholics have heard of maybe, but they don't always know how deep that tradition goes of saying things like Mary's the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what does that mean? It, it, it carries with it all of these other associations, including that one of playfulness and joy. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings may be the most influential novel of the 20th century. It's everywhere in pop culture. Video games, movies, TV series, fan fiction, Renaissance fairs, and the list goes on. Why does the Lord of the Rings set imaginations on fire? Because Tolkien understood because uh, Tolkien asked, invited it, right? That he says in his letter, um, this great letter that he wrote to his publisher um, or his want-to-be publisher, that he hoped that in sketching the stories he had, he would invite other minds and hands to the practice of subcreation. Tolkien's story is all about the creation. I mean, going from the Aina Lindale, which is the creation through the Aina or here the, his angelic characters, right? And they're singing. Um, in his in his understanding, we make still in the image in which we are by the law in which we are made, which is we are made in the image and likeness of Creator to be sub-creators, right? And it's so interesting that Tolkien's work has the presence that it does in pop culture when it, it's as if the invitation to subcreate takes on even when people don't appreciate that it's within a theologically robust framework, right? And um, of course, Tolkien was usually fairly upfront with the fact that he was writing as a Catholic. But in my in my classes with my students, I'll, I'll be saying that, look, he's Catholic. And they'll always be saying, well, we don't need to be Catholic in order to like the stories. And I'm like, well, that's true. But <laughs> what that says to me is Catholicism is simply true. And what you're responding to is the truth in which you are invited to be a sub-creator, right? And if, if you want to claim that that fits in some other theological framework, you're going to have to prove to me that that's outside of the one that Tolkien understood as Catholic, and I don't think he'll be able to do it. I think his his vision of working within the creation of everything is is robust. It's theologically robust. What did you not say that you would like to say, Rachel? Well, if to pr the proof in the, is in the pudding, right? And the proof is in whether or not we as Christians are able to write in with that invitation. And I'll say, um, my friends and I um, in my Telegram chat, chat, which is an online social media platform, have written a poem in the style of Tolkien and Lewis um, for children that is a, um, a sort of mythical grail quest with animals. And I invite you to um, visit our site, our website at dragoncommonroom.com to get a taste of this, this kind of mythical storytelling that I think we as Christians are both invited to and, um, you know, need to, to need to, to reclaim as our true tradition. We will place a link below the video. Thank you. Rachel, you are brilliant. Thank you for coming <laughs> on the show. I hope we can have you back for another glimpse into your vast knowledge. I'd, I'd love to come back. I, I feel like, you know, as I understood that it was only 20 minutes, but those were not 20 minute questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Those, those, those were really hard. You know, those were difficult questions. To, to, if to you are agreeable, support. we'll have you back and no, well, no short order. If your audience likes it, I have plenty more where that's from. Wonderful. To quote my friend Rachel, to admit they were wrong would require rethinking their entire model of reality. Most people are not equipped with the mental or spiritual strength to withstand that level of horror. So they default to blindness. Faith in our large Jesus Christ is the only way to see clearly. Everything else keeps you trapped in the web of lies that the father of lies has spun around us to make us think we can be black gods.
Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Linda Hoffman. See you on our next exciting episode of Fear Not. This has been a Chantworks production. Please visit us online at chantworks.com.